0: My name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. When it comes to the big issues affecting financial markets, they really don't come any bigger than the transition from LIBOR. With hundreds of trillions of dollars of derivatives, bonds, loans, and mortgages linked to LIBOR, shifting everything over to an alternative rate is arguably one of the most complex challenges the financial industry has ever faced and there's only 14 more months to do it. Progress has been made, and under the leadership of various industry working groups, milestones to transition have been set. An important recent development was the publication by ISDA of a new fallback methodology for derivatives referencing key interbank offered rates. This will substantially reduce systemic risk by ensuring an alternative based on risk-free rates will automatically take effect if an eyeball ceases to exist or LIBOR is deemed to be non-representative of its underlying market. Despite all this, challenges remain. A large proportion of trades still reference LIBOR and there are difficulties in dealing with so-called tough legacy exposures, those trades referencing LIBOR that are impossible to change. It's a massively complex issue, which is why we're devoting our first three episodes to it. I'm joined by Scott O'Malia, ISDA's Chief Executive, Now, Scott, like the rest of the industry, you've been living and breathing benchmark
1: reform for some time, right? Absolutely right, Nick. Uh, One of our biggest areas of focus has been benchmark fallbacks. We've just published a supplement to the ISDA 2006 definitions that will incorporate robust fallbacks for new derivatives that reference key IBORs. We've also published a protocol that will enable firms to amend existing derivatives to include the fallbacks with other parties that adhere to the protocol. Now, those changes come into effect on January 25th, 2021. We've also been working with the industry and with other regulators to support the BART benchmark transition. I'm glad you mentioned regulators
0: because we have the UK Financial Conduct Authority on the swap today. Back in 2017, then FCA CEO Andrew Bailey made an important speech in which he said the FCA would no longer compel or persuade banks to submit to LIBOR after the end of 2021. While work to transition away from LIBOR had begun before that, the speech effectively set a deadline for it. Scott, you'll be speaking to Edwin Schooling-Latter, Director of Markets and Wholesale Policy at the FCA, who's been working closely on benchmark reform pretty much since this initiative began. What are you going to be talking about?
1: Well, as you point out, they are the regulator of LIBOR and the FCA plays a central role in all of this. I'll be uh, looking to get some updates on how and when the FCA plans to communicate that LIBOR will cease to exist or will be deemed non-representative. Nick, now you mentioned the tough legacy a moment ago. That's clearly a challenging issue. So I'll be looking to find out a little bit more about the UK's plans for dealing with that. So some meaty issues there. Why don't we bring Edwin on? Welcome, Edwin. And thanks for being our very first guest on The Swap. Now, it's been more than three years since the then FCA CEO, Andrew Bailey, warned of the systemic impact should LIBOR cease to exist and effectively gave the market until the end of 2021 to move to alternative rates. Now, that speech kicked off a massive mobilization of the industry to prepare for the end of LIBOR. How do you assess the preparations of both the market and the official sector so far?
2: Thank you, Scott, and great to be with you. Overall, we're pleased at the extensive progress that's been made on transition. Highlights include the plentiful liquidity that's developed in Sonia swaps markets and the very decisive shift to Sofa and Sonia in new floating rate note issues. There are also areas where more progress needs to be made and quickly, most notably in, in corporate lending. And while it's encouraging to see sofa Swap's liquidity beginning to increase, we're all hoping to see that accelerate in the remainder of this year. I think the good news is that most financial firms and at least their largest corporate customers appear to have got the message that they need to be ready for life without LIBOR from the end of 2021. You also asked about the official sector, and and there I think it's important to note that there's been substantial progress on legislative interventions to help with some of the legacy LIBOR transactions that are hardest for firms to change, and I'm sure we'll discuss those in more detail.
1: Absolutely. Now, one of the big changes since 2017, uh, that speech Andrew gave, has been the development of robust fallbacks for derivatives. ISDA has recently published a supplement and a related protocol to incorporate the fallbacks in the into new and legacy uh, derivative trades that reference key IBORS, So now we have a timetable. And with the fallbacks due to come into effect in January 25th of 2021, how does this move the needle uh, in terms of preparations and shifting into the transition? And how important is it to have these fallbacks in place? Do you think? Scott, it's hard to overstate the
2: importance of the protocol and the new language that ISTA has agreed or to overstate the importance of having fallbacks to LIBOR in place in your derivative contracts. And that was something that the official sector across the world um, recognized very early in this transition program. And so, it was several years ago now when um, the FSB uh, co-chairs, the co-chairs of their official sector steering group, wrote to ISDA to say, "This is where we really need you to help tease out the industry consensus on on how to address this." And you've done just that. Now, why is it so important? Well, that's because the current arrangements for the end of LIBOR in older, uncleared derivatives contracts just aren't fit for purpose anymore. So those arrangements, which were designed when the world was very different from now, envisaged counterparts to contracts ringing around the major banks and dealers for quotes to agree what those counterparts owe each other. So that's a similar sort of quote to those that underpin LIBOR itself and which banks don't want to offer um, anymore. So, it's not credible to think that those older arrangements will work for thousands of market participants trying to do this um, all on their own. And those contract counterparties, if they don't act, could be left with a contract that just no longer works in the way they want it to. So, not signing that protocol, not adopting um, that fallback, therefore, seems a huge risk to take.
1: Now, you've previously said uh, that the FCA could make an announcement before the end of the year on the future of LIBOR after 2021. Is this still the case? And if so, why is this necessary? And and what implications do you think it'll have?
2: Let me start by saying that that we know that all the current LIBOR rates will continue until the end of 2021. The LIBOR Administrator, ICE Benchmark Administration, um, has a very sensible policy, public policy, of giving market participants at least one year's notice of an intention voluntarily to cease publishing any LIBOR settings. It follows from that, that there could be an announcement in this regard before the end of this year. That is still the case. And as I also noted back in June, once the ISDA protocol is out there and there's been a chance to sign up, there's a good case for giving markets clarity and certainty about the future path for LIBOR by making announcements sooner rather than later, not least so that market participants know with certainty the timeline for completing their preparations. Now, certain types of announcement um, from the administrator or from the FCA are obviously directly relevant um, to the new ISDA language and the ISDA protocol. So, when the administrator confirms, for example, that publication of a particular LIBOR rate will cease on a given future date, or when the FCA announces that the LIBOR rate will no longer be representative from a given future date, then this triggers immediate calculation of the fixed spreads that will be used in LIBOR fallbacks under the methodology agreed by the market. And of course, at least for those contractual counterparties who signed up to the protocol or used the ISDA definitions as amended, when the date of cessation or loss of representativeness arrives, contracts referencing LIBOR will fall back to the compounded RFRs in the relevant currency, plus that fixed spread.
1: As you noted, this has been quite a journey. It was, in fact, back in 2016 that the FSB actually asked ISDA to begin working on these fallbacks. And it seems like we've... Achieved a milestone uh, in, in producing the protocol and the supplements that you just referenced. But we still have quite a bit of work to do. In fact, 2021 is a super important year in terms of the transition. So, what milestones does the FCA expect firms to meet ahead of the end of 2021?
2: A variety of important milestones for 2021 are set out publicly in the roadmaps that have been published by the working groups in the key LIBOR jurisdictions. And indeed, in mid October, by the Financial Stability Board at an international level. As you would expect, many of those key milestones relate to ceasing the use of LIBOR in new business comfortably before the end of 2021. For example, in sterling, the issuance of new LIBOR cash products, so bonds and loans, is expected to cease at the end of the first quarter of 2021. In U.S. dollar and Japanese yen, new issuance of the majority of cash products is expected to stop by the end of the second quarter in 2021. And worth noting that the arc in the United States has also recommended that new derivatives trades that increase LIBOR risk um, are recommended to cease from the end of the second quarter 2021.
1: As you have noted, the derivative markets will have the fallbacks in place. That leaves two important issues still on the table. First is addressing tough legacy bonds and loans. And the second is the issue of ensuring sufficient liquidity in the new risk free rates. Can you explain what constitutes a tough legacy contract and why this issue is so problematic? So, we've used the term tough legacy
2: to describe those older LIBOR contracts that it's simply not practicable to convert. Now, this may, for example, be a floating rate note or a syndicated loan, which can only be converted with the agreement of 100% of note holders. Sometimes, however, it may not be possible even to identify who all the holders of the asset are. For example, where there's been trading of that asset in secondary markets. Or it could be a bilateral contract, a consumer mortgage, for example, where the lender has no right unilaterally to change the key terms of that contract, but the customer just doesn't respond to the lender's letter, inviting them to engage and to agree.
1: Now... The UK recently announced that the FCA will be given powers to enforce a change in LIBOR's methodology in the event that it is no longer representative in order to allow a synthetic LIBOR to continue to be used for tough legacy exposures. Why is this approach being taken and could the synthetic LIBOR remove the need uh, to transition exposures on a proactive basis? Good questions. So the powers the UK government
2: intends to grant would empower the FCA. Uh, providing that certain conditions are met, to change LIBOR at source in a fair way that approximates the level at which LIBOR would have been had it been possible to continue to publish it in the current way. Now, this can help those tough legacy contract holders we were just discussing and avoid the uncertainty or contract frustration that would otherwise be caused um, in the case of those contracts. But for counterparties that can change their contracts, active conversion, or adopting fallbacks that kick in when the rate ceases or is no longer representative, remains as important as ever. So firstly, market participants need to be aware that a synthetic LIBOR solution may not be appropriate or achievable in all circumstances. Notably, if the inputs necessary to build a robust synthetic LIBOR are not available, or not not available to the LIBOR Administrator, ICE Benchmark Administration. We've been clear that we consider one of those key inputs to be a forward-looking term rate based on the RFR chosen for the relevant currency, so for sterling, so for, uh, for US dollar and so on. But even where these inputs are available or made available to IBA, A synthetic LIBOR would, by its nature, be a one-size-fits-all solution. And as I just noted, because LIBOR itself is a forward-looking rate, the most obvious way of producing a synthetic alternative is also using a forward-looking term version of the relevant risk-free rate and adding a spread calculated in a fair way, where it would clearly make sense to look to the consensus already established through ISDA's work on how to calculate that spread. But the future centre of gravity of derivative and other interest rate markets will not be those forward-looking term versions of SOFA and SONIA. It will be the overnight SOFA and SONIA rates themselves compounded in arrears at the end of the relevant term. In other words, it will be the same compounded in arrears model used in SONIA, SOFA and other RFR swaps and bonds already and chosen by the market to be the foundation stone of ISDA's fallback arrangements for other derivative contracts. So, for market participants that want to align all their contracts with that new market standard, because this will minimise basis risk and because liquidity will concentrate around that market standard, then it's likely to be better to convert actively to the compounded rates. And relying on a synthetic LIBOR will not achieve that for you.
1: Any sense of when this new legislation and authority will be made available so market participants can get a sense of how this is going to run or play out regarding synthetic LIBOR?
2: So there should be clarity on that uh, relatively soon. So the process in the UK is that um, legislation is tabled um, in front of our parliament and then there's a process of readings in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Uh, But clearly that's a process um, that will begin and end um, before the end of 2021. So those powers are in place by that date.
1: Now, you referenced other jurisdictions in this LIBOR and IBOR transition is a global strategy, effectively. Um, official sector folks uh, and regulators have been linked up very well up till now. Other jurisdictions, including the U.S. and EU, have also proposed alternative solutions to dealing with the tough, tough legacy problem. Do you think the various approaches will be aligned? And is this a conflict in how jurisdictions are thinking of, of tackling the issue?
2: So I characterise the EU approach as an approach that's complementary to the one taken in the UK rather than an alternative. So it would allow the EU authorities, for example, to choose the synthetic LIBOR rate as a legally binding replacement rate when LIBOR panels um, end, should the EU wish to, to do so. And there are also similarities between aspects of the proposals that the US ARC has put to the New York state legislature that are very similar to the model we would look to in a synthetic LIBOR. So, for example, giving safe harbors to issuers of US dollar LIBOR floating rate notes issued under New York law if they use a forward-looking sofa term rate and a fixed spread as a fallback to LIBOR at the point LIBOR becomes unrepresentative. Now, of course, for some other types of contract, um, those ARC proposals suggested a a somewhat different solution and that could be workable too. Clearly, it will be very important to make sure that there's no conflict of law um, and there is more than one way of making sure that that's the case. But we're all alive on the authority side to the importance of coordination, and there is no conflict between those of us working
1: on this really important matter. There's still the potential for maybe a cross-border conflict in that There could be more than one jurisdiction regulating certain IBOR transitions. Do you have any concerns with that?
2: So I think there's there's two ways to avoid um, conflicts of law when it comes to fallbacks imposed through legislation when LIBOR ends or or becomes unrepresentative. Now, one method is to have absolute alignment in terms of what that fallback or replacement rate is. And the other method is to make sure that there is a very specific um, and legally binding solution based on the law of where that contract is struck. And you can put those two um, different routes together to make sure that you arrive at the best possible place that works in the best possible way for the different types of contracts and contract counterparties that are out there.
1: So let's shift to to the other issue, and that's liquidity. It's about 14 months until the end of 2021. Are you confident that there is or will be sufficient liquidity in the major risk-free rates, particularly in Sonia and SOFR, to pull all of this off?
2: So, in Sonia, I think there's a case for ample confidence. So, in September, for example, for the first time, we saw more than half of the very long-dated cleared sterling swaps transacted in Sonia rather than LIBOR. And that's a sign, I think, of where the market sees the future lies. On the sofa side, it's been harder to secure that growth in liquidity, but in recent weeks we have seen a marked uptick and hopefully that augurs more growth to come in the weeks ahead.
1: Now, LIBOR has been with us for a very long time and its cessation will be a major change for change for from financial markets. Remembering back into my days as CFTC commissioner back in 2010 when we were uncovering some of the the uh, manipulation charges regarding the IBORs. It seems so easy that we could transition off of this rate to another rate. But, you know, having worked through this process uh, over the past 10 years, it is a very big challenge. We've had to shore up the existing IBOR uh, fallbacks. We've developed new risk-free rates, and it's still ongoing. It's a massive body of work, and there's still the operational challenges firms are dealing with. Now, if you were to write its obituary, how would you think LIBOR should be remembered? So I think it can reasonably reasonably be argued that
2: in its prime, LIBOR played a positive role in facilitating cross-border and multi-currency financial markets. Regrettably, as you highlighted, it might also be noted that it had something of a midlife crisis. So there was a lack of self-care, standards slipped. And it became too cosy with a few folk in the wrong crowd or behaving in the wrong way. So moving to some very strict discipline and oversight, put it back on the straight and narrow. But now the question for that last bit of the obituary is whether it will be retired gracefully before it's manifestly too diminished, too out of date, too out of place for the demands of 21st century interest rate markets.
1: Well, we'll be interested to see how this all plays out uh, in the, the next 14 to or so months. are going to be super important uh, in this transition period. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about very technical issues. Um, you've been a terrific guest and you have w- worked with the industry for some time now, uh, whether it's on the MIFID and uh, AMIR rule changes as your role is in in markets oversight, but you've also spent an incredible amount of time on the IBOR transition. I'd like to ask a question to get to know our guests a little bit more and get get a sense of who you are. You've spent most of your time at the FCA and the Bank of England overseeing markets and financial infrastructure, among other things. How did you even end up in this space?
2: Well, answering that one properly uh, would risk starting a story longer than LIBORs. However, a short answer would be that I've had the good fortune to meet and work with some very smart people in private and public sectors and to follow those people into tackling some fascinating and important issues that, that make a real difference to the economic well-being of all the countries of the world. So it's been a real pleasure and privilege to, to work with so many talented individuals um, who've really shown what imagination and determination can achieve.
1: So I've carried on doing that work. So if you weren't saving the world from LIBOR, what would you be doing if you weren't working in this sector?
2: Well, I'd uh, hope at least have more time to arrange date night with my long-suffering wife, Scott. But possibly you should have to accept those being at rather cheaper or even cheaper restaurants um, uh, than the occasional um, meal out
1: now. Well, Edwin, thank you very much for being with us. And it's been great having you on and a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for all your support and uh, transparency into the official sector process around the IBOR transition. Absolutely. My pleasure,
2: Scott. And I think it should really be be me in the official sector thanking you, um, your colleagues, and the, the many, many folk across the industry who've been a part of making this extraordinary
1: transition happen. Thank you also for being our very first guest on The Swap. Thank you. My pleasure.
0: Scott, you covered a lot of ground there, and Edwin made a number of important points. It was interesting that he reiterated a point that he had made previously, that there could be an announcement about the fate of LIBOR post-2021 before the end of this year. How do you think that will go down with the industry? I mean, how, what do you think the reaction of that will be?
1: It is pretty significant, and, and everybody's trying to work out their timing through the end of the year so they can confidently interface with um, clients. Nobody likes uncertainty or surprises, but at the same time, that could be both, actually, a bit of a surprise and when it happens. But um, we know it's coming at some point. The question is when and and what they say.
0: Edwin made the point that uh, the message seems to be getting through loud and clear that LIBOR is going to end at some point after the end of 2021.
1: You and I have been working on this IBOR transition process, doing conferences, doing engagements with market participants and regulators. We both know that information and awareness and acceptance has increased immeasurably from a year ago. So I think we're well on the way. I think firms are prepared, doing what they need to do, working through the governance process, getting ready to sign and signing the protocol.
0: And then the other point that came up was the liquidity in the, the new RFRs, the risk-free rates like Sofa and Sonia. Edwin mentioned that Sonia had increased significantly in liquidity and trading volumes. Sofa, on the other hand, was still a little bit behind the curve. What's your view on this importance of, of building liquidity and building trading volumes in these risk-free rates over the, the coming months?
1: Um, I, I guess I'm a little surprised that it So far, hasn't taken off in the way I think everybody would hope. I think it will take off, and I think it over the next year, the next actually six to eight months will be an essential test period for it. And and frankly, I do think it it will gain the liquidity that's necessary to support transition. I think the PAI discounting by CCPs is a big step. I think the benchmark fallbacks are a big step. It starts to lock in some decisions. I think we're going to see these things start to to fully integrate and behaviors to change. And so I think we will get more liquidity. I also think more people are gonna begin issuing in the risk-free rates. And I think that's a chicken or egg problem, but I do think we're gonna get that lined up appropriately and more issuance will lead to more trading and liquidity.
0: We're coming to the end of our time, but we're going to be sticking with the topic of benchmark reform. In the next episode, we'll look at the milestones firms need to meet in order to be ready for end 2021 and how they're tackling their legacy LIBOR exposures. Scott, you'll be on the next episode too, so
1: we'll talk to you then. Hey, I'm looking forward to it, Nick. Thank you. That's it for
0: this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.